Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that is deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. Yeah, and as usual, if you have any questions that you would like us to answer, feel free to email uh, in at info at grove.church, or you can Facebook message us, uh, or even write it in on the Connect card, and I'll answer it myself because I'm that good. There you go. Written forms of communication, always uh, a classic throwback in a digital age. Listen, writing will never go out of style. There you go. You know that. And then just a heads up, uh, for some reason, it's the beginning of summer and we both have colds. So that's a cool little... uh, I blame kids. You know, shout out to uh, to the youth group who uh, apparently (laughs) at at some point you gave it to me. All right. But with that being said, uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into this week's Bible talk. Uh, this week, we're going to highlight a passage in 1 Samuel, and, and rather, I guess, than uh, one particular passage, we're really going to talk about this idea of the fall of King Saul. And so you'll remember we talked about the way 1 Samuel breaks up. Uh, it goes from Samuel to Saul, Saul to David. And so we're really, at this point, we're talking about Saul's decline, um, his eventual fall and, and death, spoilers, and then uh, David's rise to Wait, power. Saul, Saul does. He is not still alive. Oh, so goodness. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, but ultimately Saul start, and we talked about this last week on the podcast, Saul starts off super well. Um, he defeats the Ammonites and they were going to, um, plunder the city called Jabesh Gilead. And and what we're told is the city's surrounded. They have no hope. They're, they're getting ready to fight, but they realize that they're all going to die. And so they go and they ask the Ammonites, okay, well, what, we, what do we need to do to surrender? And the Ammonites say, well, hey, you need to surrender. And also we're going to pluck out, I think it's their right eyes. I didn't write down which eye it was, but one of their eyes of everyone who lives in town. And so that's underst- brutal. Yeah, understand- that, that's kind of brutal. Understandably, uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead were not too keen on that. And so they go back in and basically um, in, the, in the face of absolute hopelessness, they send out messengers like, hey – Can anyone come and help us? This is about to happen to us. And it says that Saul receives one of the messengers and that he's filled with the spirit of God and that he essentially acts like a king. Like he rallies the other tribes together. He says, no, this is not going to happen to one of our cities. And he goes and he rescues the people. It's it's really this incredible story. So that's the start of, or I guess not the start of Saul's reign, but that's the first real big accomplishment of King Saul, right? That's, That's what he's known for in the beginning. So he starts really good. And then it just kind of goes downhill from there. And so there's a few different things that goes that um, that go on. There's a, a people of uh, Amalek or the Amalekites. Um, they're a, God orders them to basically order Saul to attack them. Um, and the Amalekites were just evil people. And I think it's one of the things that we we can glance over when reading through the Old Testament because we can say like how how can God order the, destru- the destruction of these entire people? And then when you look at it, like oh they're sacrificing children and horribly corrupt like that that makes a little bit more sense like really it was this idea of um god installing moral virtue into this into this region and so god says which i think is an interesting point mm -hmm. because how easy is it to look back on biblical history well why would god eliminate a, a large group of people why would god do that and we read our context and our understanding of moral authority and moral law and morality in general and we we read that back into biblical context, and so it's, we have to understand that big point right there, which I think is really key. Yeah, is there is that establishment, that order that needs to be played out. So yeah, and so all all of this is going down, and then God gives uh, Saul the, 
basically saying, I, you need to go full scorched earth. I don't want you taking cattle. I don't want you taking anything. I don't want you taking prisoners. Like I just want this entire area destroyed. And Saul disobeys. Uh, it says that he take he ends up taking prisoners. He ends up taking cattle. He takes a bunch of things. Um, his his generals profit off of the whole deal. Um, and then perhaps one of the the worst thing that ha- worst things that happens is Samuel dies um, during the reign of Saul. And essentially at this point, God has already made up his mind that Saul is not going to be king for much longer and that Saul's line, so his sons, will not become king after him. And so the Bible says that the Lord stopped speaking to Saul. Um, and when Saul is about to go into a battle, he's feeling incredibly nervous about this and he seeks the Lord and the Lord isn't answering him. And so it says that he actually goes um, and he finds uh, what the Bible calls a, a medium, but basically someone who... Uh, talks to dead people. And so if, if, and for a little bit more context, when we read through, um, I think it's in Leviticus, I didn't write down the exact, but it, it's strictly forbidden. Like the Israelites are yeah. not to engage that sort of thing. Um, and again, we don't know exactly how all of this stuff works, but it's, it's, we can infer that what this lady is doing is really consorting with demonic powers and not necessarily even talking to the souls of people who have passed, but really just interacting with demons and allowing this, this kind of, um, evil spiritualism into the nation of Israel that God had forbidden. But Saul goes there, and then this is what happens. So in First Cha- First Samuel chapter 28, verses 15 through 19, it says this, Then Samuel said to Saul, so Saul goes to the medium, he wants to talk to Samuel, the medium brings up Samuel, and then Samuel understandably is is very upset with Saul for what's going on. He says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. And so Saul's really his last act as king before going into this battle is to disobey one of the very clear commandments of the Lord. And Samuel makes it clear to him that like, God has no longer chosen you. Like God chose you to be king. You've disobeyed him. You've lost favor. And now it's fated that you are not going to be king for much longer. And and we get this interesting moment of acceptance from Saul too, where he goes into battle. Um, Really, it seems like he understands that this is, this is going to be where he dies. And so there is a little bit of bravery there. And uh, just to kind of recap what happens in the battle, all of Saul's sons die. Um, It's him. And uh, his armor bearer, who was with him at the very end, um, and Saul wants to commit suicide instead of be captured by uh, by the enemy. And so that's what he ends up doing. Saul dies. And then the Philistines come, and it says when they raid the bodies the next day, they find the king. Um, and they cut off his head, and then they take his armor, and they bring it back to their temple to their god, uh, Dagon, is their god's name. And if you, if you remember Dagon, that's also the god where um, uh, in the story of Samson, you know, that all that stuff is going on as well. So it's it's been a long uh it's been a long war with the Philistines and the Israelites. And the the last thing I wanted to bring up, because it's not the last thing that Saul does as king, but really it's the 
the last thing that involves Saul as a person is Israel Israel finds out what happened. They find out that the king died and they find out that he has been that the body of the king has been brought back to the temple that's being desecrated that um really they're celebrating this as a win for them. They're celebrating it as a win for their f- false god. And there's something I never noticed before until I went back and uh reread it in in preparation for for today is I knew that um a group of Israelites were filled with anger and they went into Philistine territory and they brought back the body of Saul. Um, but I never caught that the city, the people who do that are from the city of Jabesh Gilead. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because that is the city uh, that Saul saves with his first act of being king. And I, I think there's something um, just poetic and beautiful about the fact that the, the men of that city remember what Saul did for them. And it basically says that they were filled with anger and they just charged into enemy lines. They went to the temple. They brought back Saul. They brought back his his body, his armor. They brought back the bodies of his sons and they gave him, um, instead of a burial being, not a, even a burial, instead of being displayed um, as a sacrifice to the Philistine God, they buried him the way that God said that you're supposed to bury people and, and really gave him an, an honorable um, an honorable passing in that way. And, and all of that to say, I think Saul is such an interesting and complicated character because he doesn't fit into, and I think just uh, with us, it's so easy to think of people as, as good guys and bad guys. You know, if you watch Lord of the Rings, there's Aragorn, there's Sauron, and there's not very many people in between. Like it's either you're evil or you're all the way good. For those who don't watch Lord of the Rings who have not seen it, that's okay. We, we aren't judging not you, okay. but it's good versus evil. That's, a, that's the picture. Also great books and films, yes, but if yes. you haven't seen that, yeah. Um, the extended version are the ones you should watch just so you know. Absolutely. On Blu-ray. Um, anyways. Back to back to back. Going, it's 13 hours. Going back uh, to what we're talking about. Um, Saul doesn't fit easily into either of those categories. Um, he's not all the way good. We see, again, we talked about it. Saul makes mistakes and he rejects God. Um, and at the same time, he's not all the way bad. We see him rise up and really do great things. And God actually empowers him uh, to do these things. And I think for for so many of us, we should be very cautious to see, to put our lives into perspective of the kings that we're going to see. Saul and David, and we'll talk more about David next week, are both imperfect people. They both have very high highs. They both have very low lows. And like I said, we're going to get into David's highs and lows next week. Stay tuned. Um, stay tuned. But what separates them is that David's lows are always marked by repentance. Um, and it doesn't always come right away, but um, during the most famous point, uh, the most famous sin of David is is when he um, he sleeps with one of his general's wives um, and has that man killed to cover it up. Um, and he's confronted by a prophet. But when Saul is confronted by the prophet, Saul digs in and he basically comes or walks further away from God. When David's confronted by the prophet, he uh, repents and he turns away from his sin. And I think it's so it's so interesting that when we look at their lives, it's not that they're separated by David's a good man and Saul's a bad man. They're mm-hmm. separated by the fact that when Saul is confronted with his sin, he does not repent. And when David's confronted with his sin, he does. And I think that's an important lesson for for us to take away in our lives today. Yeah, and I even I even think it's it's worth reminding and even repeating the fact that even in the midst of Saul's the end of Saul's life, where he went into the battle with Amalek and was fighting, that there's a redeeming quality about the story as well. Even as Evan brought up with Jabesh Gilead, like there's a redeeming aspect to these individuals who charged in to get Saul's body to be able to 
uh, bury him improperly. And I think that's a picture for for us to even today about God's redeeming grace. And even though the picture in the contrast between Saul and David is is pretty vast, is so uh, uh, stark in some respects with David's responsiveness versus Saul's responsiveness, I think it's worth reminding, like, even in our disobedience, the Bible says very clearly, even when we're faithless, God is faithful. Uh, and so that's so cool uh, to see even those pictures throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but we're going to continue on in our discussion of this week's reading. Uh, and I, I get to jump into the book of Matthew, and I have just a, a passage of Scripture that I have always found fascinating and challenging in my own right. And that's out of Matthew 22, uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, some title this section of the parable of the great wedding feast, the parable of the great feast. Uh, either way, it's the same parable. Uh, and just as a reminder for many of us that a parable is literally just a story with a point that God, that Jesus is speaking in uh, an allegory, if you will, to help us understand concepts that are almost too big for us to understand our humanity. And so he tries to make them in a term and in a way that we can relate to them. So I'm going to read this and then share a few thoughts about it because I think it's so fun and challenging in its own right. Uh, But it says this in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Jesus also told them other parables. So in context, this is the third parable almost in succession of back-to-back-to-back parables. And it continues on. It says, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a king who was prepared, who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his son or his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened calf have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went on their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wedding the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked. How is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, Bind his hands and feet and throw him into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, and I think it's interesting with when it comes to parables, oftentimes we can see the point before the point is clearly made. I think in our day and age, we kind of have an idea of what Jesus is getting at just upon the years and years and decades and decades of education and awareness and growth, and even even hearing different statements about God's judgment and his wrath. Uh, but we have to remember that there's always a point to be made, and God's word does not return void. God's word is not irrelevant for today. Uh, but there's always a challenge that you and I have to wrestle through when it comes to God's kingdom. Uh, and the beauty is, when it, when God's kingdom comes in its full glory, when we are brought and invited into this kingdom, which we are even today invited into relationship, invited to be a part of God's family, uh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be better than the best party we've ever attended. And it's something that we're not going to want to miss. But it's interesting to note that even the people that were invited by the king, in other words, the people who are invited by God, they themselves rejected the invite. And Anytime you, and and go back to Jesus' story for a second, the parable, if you are invited by the king to go somewhere, to rebel or reject or say no, it's almost treasonous. You almost have no choice in that day and age to say, no, I don't want to show up. And so 
the reaction and the response of the king was in response to their rebellion was their rejection. They had already committed, mind you, that they're going to go. And then they turned their backs and walked away and did their own thing. So to rebel against God, you have to remember that we're rebelling against the kingdom we're aligned to. We are created uh, for his kingdom, for his ways. And when God invites us to live in alignment with that, when God invites us to be a part and to live accordingly, we are held to task for that, for that uh, agreement, agreement, if you will. And, and so we're just seeing throughout this parable, which is, is a challenging one in some respects, because like, well, this means like God's just justice and his wrath are, are real. They're not fake. They're not, um, they're not mediocre or like even minimal. Like the God's wrath and punishment are huge, um, because God does not want sin to take over. He does not like sin. His wrath is against sin. And as we allow sin to control our lives and our actions, he punishes it. He eradicates it, which is why the death of Christ is so powerful and, and important. And it's interesting because as, as I think about this passage, the statement that really sh- that, I, that has always struck me, I remember even as a kid, 15, 16 years old, uh, and I'm, I'm a very young 35 and I still look really good uh, today. And that's why I'm on a podcast and not a vodcast. Right, listen, you have a face made for radio. That's Let what I'm me told tell you. often. Uh, but it's interesting that the last statement is this. It says, many are called, but few are chosen. And we can't see this in any other way, any more beautiful way or tense way than when the, the in Jesus' parable, the king comes and sees a guest at this feast. And he stops and sees that he's not dressed appropriately. He doesn't have the clothing that a wedding uh Really, you're expected to wear at a wedding feast. And when he's asked, why aren't you wearing the right clothes? There's no response. There's this almost silence of like, oops. And he's cast out into this into outer darkness, which is in essence just a, a picture of what judgment's going to look like. Because the truth is this, that there's a responsibility that you and I carry. When we look at Jesus and we look at the parables and we look at what's expected of us, there's a responsibility to quote unquote, dress the right way. We're supposed to be clothed in righteousness. That's the picture. So when this individual who's a part of this party is not dressed appropriately, it shows even more starkly the rebellion inside of him that I'm going to show up, but I'm going to do it my way. And that's not how we get to live. That's not how we get to step in and be invited into God's kingdom. And so when we, we see the statement, many are called, but few are chosen. It really comes down to our responsiveness. The difference between the two, between those who are called and those who are chosen is really not just our allegiance, but our obedience to what Christ is asking of us. Our, our, our lives being laid down in submission to what Christ is asking us. And that plays into every life. That plays into every decision and every situation of our lives. And, and simply this, I think it's important to remind us that there's a rebellion in all of us. When, when God asks us to do something or we feel the prompt of the Holy Spirit to say something or do something or reach out to a coworker or a neighbor or, or anyone else, a boss or a family member, there's, there's a need to be responsive and obedient to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us so we can stay in alignment with what God expects to us, expects of us, sorry. Uh, and our lives must be laid down in alignment with Christ. And so I think it's really encouraging and challenging that we have to remember many are called, few are chosen. And it comes down to how are we going to respond to the invitation God has already given us through Christ right. to be a part of this wedding feast. No, I think that's always a great reminder. Um, our last thing that I want to talk about today is actually uh, in the book of First Chronicles chapter 10. Uh, if you'll remember from when we introduced the books, uh, the books of Samuel and Chronicles are are very different, um, even though they cover a lot of the same topics. Uh, Samuel, and then later the books of the kings, uh, both of those seems, seem to be written 
um, if not during the events that they're describing, immediately following those events. And so, and particularly with the books of Kings, it looks like it's it's written after the reign of a king, and then they stop, and then when the next king's reign is over, they begin to write that as well. And so you get this perspective of people who had just recently lived through this. Whereas in Chronicles, what you get is the perspective of people who um, generations later are looking back at the triumphs of Israel and the failures of Israel, and they're really warning future generations against it. And so um, just to wrap up the life of Saul, which I think is interesting because um, we did this for Moses and Joshua and a few other characters, and I wasn't expecting to do it with Saul, who's not necessarily a major character or even like a uh, what we would consider a role model uh, character, but he plays such a, uh, a large role in the formation of Israel and also into the, um, the entrance of really Israel's golden age. When King David becomes king of the, of Israel, it's really Israel at its best, Um, not at its perfect, but it's a nation that is serving God. Um, It has a king who loves and pursues relationship with the Lord. And like I, like we were talking about, even with their, uh, their triumphs and their failures, um, there is still that, God-centric motivation to the nation, where when we go through the rest of the kings, uh, starting with Solomon and then moving on, um, there's a lot of bad kings and very few good kings that we'll see, and we'll go through more more of that as it goes on. Um, and so to read in First Chronicles chapter 10, starting in verse 8, uh, we're just going to read the passage about Jabesh Gilead, and then we'll read the end uh, where it really wraps up the life of Saul. The next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain, and they found Saul next to his sons, uh, fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple with their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. But when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all of the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bodies and their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted with a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And I think that's a perfect ending to that passage there. He turns the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And that is where we get um, every other king of Israel besides Saul is descended from that line, or at least king of Judah, I should say. Um, and they're going to be important characters that we're going to be talking about for uh, for a long time on the podcast while we're going through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. These are all going to be, from this point forward, uh, David and his descendants. Uh, eventually, Jesus is also one of David's descendants. Spoiler, so, spoiler yeah. alert. Spoiler that we've already that we've already talked about on this podcast. Uh, but with that being said, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up uh, for this week's Let's Read the Bible. Uh, just a quick reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. If you would like to find more of our resources and podcasts, you can visit our website at grove.church. And also do us a favor, leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps get the word out there um, and get a larger community of people listening to this podcast. Five star five star yeah no none of that four star stuff you know what you know what we are uh but with that being said uh we'll see you all next week